Lord, we, your people, cry out. There is no one like you, and you are worthy of all of our praise. We gladly lay our lives down before you and call you Lord, and we love you because you have first loved us. And so, Father, in this same heart expression of worship, as we come together as the body of believers of Fellowship Bible Church, we ask, Lord, that you would move in our hearts, that as we look at the pages of sacred writ, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Would you continue to lead us and guide us, mold us and fashion us, transform us into the likeness of your Son. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that love you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You want to find your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6. We'll be beginning in verse 19. I have a kind of a fascination just kind of studying various presidents. I like to see what moved them, how they make their decisions, what guided them. I like I like to even understand what their offices look like. And President Lyndon Johnson, when he was in the White House in his office, he had a very unique letter. It was a letter written to his great grandfather, Baines, by none other than the great Texan Sam Houston himself. Now, Lyndon Johnson's great-grandfather, Baines, had a significant role in the life of Sam Houston, and that is is that he was instrumental in leading Sam Houston to Christ. And that letter, although it has value from just a personal standpoint, has greater value when you understand the transformation that took place in this man. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with Sam Houston, Houston, Texas is named after him. If I just put that together for you, like, oh, wow, it's all coming together for me. But, I mean, this was a great statesman, a great fighter, a soldier. Uh, Several different times he served as the president of the Republic of Texas. When Texas joined the Union, he served as a state senator, and he uh, finally became the governor of Texas. Now, to study this man, to learn about him, you find that uh, he was somewhat crass. He was tough. He could be very hard-nosed. And yet, through the efforts of his wife, who continued to pray for him, and Baines, who actually led this man to Christ, on November 19, 1854, Rocky Creek, which is about two miles away from Independence, Texas, Sam Houston was baptized. There's a throng of crowds that came and watched this. They just could not believe, because this guy had been so rough and callous, was Literally a changed man now because of the presence of Christ in his life. He was no longer coarse or belligerent, and he had a sense of peace about him and a sense of contentment. He was settled. And so he was baptized, and after his baptism, he made this statement to the local minister at the church that he attended in Independence. He said, I would like to start paying half of your salary. (laughs) What? Why's that? And he said this, quote, My pocketbook was baptized too. See, Sam Houston understood that when you and I come into a life-saving, changing relationship with Christ, that means that everything in our life is going to be yielded to him and is going to change. We are going to look different. And now, as we've been going and making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, we see that Matthew is clearly establishing that Jesus Christ, he is indeed God. And he shows how he's fulfilling all these prophecies and he does these miracles. And now Jesus is calling out people, follow me. 
And when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we kind of get to learn what does that look like in very specific, real terms. What does it look like to follow Jesus Christ? Now, we would expect that Jesus would give us a new purpose in life and that he would direct our prayers like we looked at last week and that our personal relationships would look different because we have a relationship with Christ. But today we're going to come to a part of his message that a lot of people would like to just kind of put off to the side and say, well, Jesus really isn't interested in this category or this subject. Actually, when we come to the subject of money, Jesus is critically interested. He's going to make some statements that are so radical, it could potentially split this room between those who are going to have one God, wealth, and those who are truly going to yield to the one true God. And so, what does it look like to truly follow Jesus as Lord and to know him as such? Well, beginning in verse 19, we're going to find out that he gives us a new priority with our wealth. Look what Jesus has to say, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. And this isn't just a one-time, this is a a negative present imperative. This is an ongoing lifestyle, and what he's saying is that it's already happening. And it's better translated to say, stop doing this. Stop storing up treasures on the earth. He says, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. For, look what he says, verse 20. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what Jesus says is, listen, stop storing up for yourselves treasures wealth, material goods on this earth. Now, let me make some statements to help you understand what he's saying to do so in context. Nowhere does Jesus or any of the apostles say magnify and say, like, to be poor and to live in poverty is the ideal. Nor does any, any author, human, human author that God uses in the Old Testament and the Old, New Testament, ever condemn wealth. Or saying that if you get wealth through legitimate means, is wrong. It, it never happens. Okay, he, the, both testaments recognize that you can gather money, you can have animals, you can have property. There's things you can collect. There's, there is ways to acquire wealth through legitimate means, and it never criticizes that. What it does say is that you've got to make sure that these things don't own you. And don't just say, oh, great, I got a bunch of stuff, and I'll just kind of hold on to this statement, because Jesus is going to drive this home in a very real way. You know, this passage does not teach that it's sinful to provide for your families, to prepare for the future, or to have money to carry on your business, or to make wise investments. But what Jesus is saying is just make real certain you're not finding your security in your material possessions. Rather, what you want to be doing is you want to be storing up treasure in heaven. He says, you know, it's not wrong to possess things. It's always wrong when things possess you. Now, Jesus says, stop storing up all this treasure on earth. He says, look at it. What happens to it? Moth and rust destroy. Thieves break in and steal. Now, back in biblical times there, actually trying to hold on to your wealth was kind of a hard thing to do. Because it was difficult to keep your hands on it, to protect it. So what they would do when Jesus talks about moth and rust destroy, 
people who are very wealthy, they would actually have gold actually woven into their fabric. Okay, and so they're wearing all this wool and this cotton. And what would happen, they would be extremely expensive garments that they have. They did it to actually kind of keep their wealth close to them. But it was also a way to just kind of flaunt it, you know, like, boy, people go, whoa, one wealthy dude. And I imagine some of that stuff got a little heavy with all that gold kind of woven in there. And what Jesus is saying is something they all knew. You could have really nice clothes. These were not mass-produced stuff that you get at Gap or anything like that. This, were, this took a lot of time, and yet moths could come in and they'd start eating that stuff up and they could wear away these garments. And so he also says, or don't store up your treasure where thieves could break in and steal. And so if you had wealth, people would sometimes try to like, put it in a treasure or a safe box in their house. Yet most of the homes were made out of these mud bricks. And so literally thieves would just kind of take their shovels and they would dig a hole right through the side of your house. They'd go in and they'd steal your stuff. And so it was very difficult to keep wealth. Jesus says, don't store it up here. Rather, he says, verse 20, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust, that, that will never destroy it, where thieves will never break in and steal because where your treasure is, there will your heart be as well. What Jesus is saying is, when you've got the opportunity to give and invest in heaven and the advancement of the kingdom of God, do so. And when he says lay it up, it's like make this a lifestyle, an ongoing priority. See, when Jesus enters into our life, when we enter into a relationship with him, he wants to reorient every aspect of our life, including what we're going to do with the money we have. He wants us to come to a point where we are cheerfully, graciously, even sacrificially giving as an expression of worship to him to show that God is greater than wealth. And prior to coming to Christ, wealth very well may have been your God. And so he's saying, store up treasures in heaven. Now, let me give you a a famous quote. You've heard of this guy, Jim Elliott, down in Ecuador, dies as a martyr. And his most famous quote is, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And when we hear that quote, we think of Jim Elliott and how he and his comrades sacrificed their life to bring the gospel to these, these Indians in Ecuador. We focus on the sacrifice. I mean, Jim Elliott was a brilliant man. He had a lot going for him. And we focus on the fact like, man, he just laid it all down for Jesus' cause. And he just was willing to go out into the jungles and totally rough it and take a spear through him. And, but in actuality, yes, it's true to think about what he sacrificed. But it's equally true that to see that he lived to gain. He, he said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, he was very interested in treasure. He was a good investment maker. He was just investing in heaven. He wanted treasure with God. He wanted the opportunity to have great responsibility, to give great expressions of devotion to God. That's what he's saying. And Jesus says, store up treasure in heaven. Give. He says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. And this is what it comes down to, you guys. Wherever your heart really is, what you long for, what you really desire, what you're devoted to, that will dictate and direct your actions. 
And so if you are just enamored with the things of this world, wealth, and you think I'd like to have just as much as possible, you base your security on what your bank account and your IRAs and your investment portfolio looks like, then friends, that will drive your behavior. On the other hand, if God has your heart, if he truly is your all in all, you, you love him and you have a passion for the living God, then your money will follow that direction. In fact, you can learn a lot about your spiritual condition by just looking at where your money goes, whether that be your checkbook or if you're doing the little Quicken deal or just see your, take a look at your little next visa statement and see where, where is all my money going? It will give you a real good indicator of what really is truly important to you. Now, obviously, God gives us money for us to be able to provide for our families, to supply, to enjoy life. But God has also given us finances for an opportunity for us to glorify him and to lay up treasure in heaven. When, when Jesus Christ has your heart, he will have your money as well. It really comes down to a heart issue. It's not like, Ugh, you just better give some money and forward it on to the church and check that off and feel good about yourself. God wants your heart. You know, he doesn't actually need your money. He doesn't. He gives you money because he treats you as a manager, as a steward, as an opportunity for you to be a blessing, a conduit of blessing and grace to the people in this world and to the glory of God. And so how is it that we're going to move to a point where we can truly lay up treasure in heaven? And what does that even look like? We've got to start asking questions like this. Honestly. What do you value most? What, do you th- what would you most hate to want to lose? Boy, if I, if I lost this man, I would just go ballistic. Everything would fall apart. Where do your thoughts turn to on a frequent basis when you have opportunity just to think? What gets you really excited, just kind of makes you, ah, life is good. What, what is it that makes you say life is good? What drives that statement? Uh, what affords you the greatest pleasure? These are questions you want to ask that will help you start understanding truly where your treasure and your heart is. I'll tell you that my experiences are that when you are around Christians that love the Lord, they also love to give to the Lord, whether they be extremely wealthy. In my lifetime, I've known people that have had, we would call exceedingly wealthy, had great riches, and had tremendous love for the Lord. And although I have no idea what they truly gave, it would be, there, would, there would be some indicators that they had a great joy in being involved financially and forwarding kingdom work. You could see it written on their faces, their interest, their intrigue, wanting to know more. They were good investors, both in this life and the life to come. They wanted to know what their money was doing. They wanted to know how God was using these finances for the furthering of the work. And I've also met people that are extremely poor that truly honored God in their giving. Probably the time that just stood out to me the most um, was when I, and we had just huge impression in my life. I was over in Russia, and I was teaching hermeneutics, which is the art and principles of how you interpret the scripture. And I had this class of Russians. I had translator. And and so it was kind of an all-day class. And so in the morning, I started just asking different students in the class if they would give the morning devotional before we got onto our subject matter. And I'll tell you, it was fascinating. I learned far more from them than they ever learned from me. 
And this one woman, her name was Nadia. She gives this testimony of, of, of joy in giving. And, and yet she's crying when she says this because she is in a state where she actually has nothing more to give. Because this is a woman that lived in poverty. And yet she's giving a devotional on the joy of giving to the living God. She's got tears streaming down her eyes. And she's telling all of us. And others are crying. I'm like, oh my. I have never encountered anything like this. When you have someone who has nothing. I would go to their little homes, if we could call that. And they would, they would give me the best they had. With like a little cup of tea. And they couldn't even afford sugar. They would wear the same clothes every single day. And yet, here we're talking about what a joy it is to give everything to God, and I wish I had more to give. I was recently reminded of this when Mike Harden and I went to India in November, and we went and visited the Banjara people. These people live in poverty. They live in huts. Animals just kind of walking around. When we were at this worship service of these believers, they have no church building. No chairs. You're all sitting in chairs. They sat on this mat. We sat around and they are just worshiping God and they're singing out like like there was no tomorrow. No holding back. And villagers and animals were walking by. Bystanders would kind of take a look at what's going on. And here are the Christians who are facing persecution and will be alienated from their community, worshiping God with everything they have. I'm like, I'm in the midst of these kind of believers and to see the joy the heartfelt expressions of worship to God. And then they did something like, whoa, we're, they're, they're doing an offering. The people that live in the mud huts then start putting in this money and they're giving to God. Why? Why does that happen? Because wherever your heart is, there your treasure will be as well. And they are taking the treasure they have and they are giving it to God for his glory. And that is exactly what Jesus is driving at. It is not wrong to have much. And everyone, frankly, in this room, we are wealthy beyond belief. This is really a matter not of congratulations, but of great prayer. Because as Jesus is going to go on, money can take you places you never wanted it to take you. So what are we doing? How is it that we could truly lay up treasure in heaven? And when he says lay up treasure, that's not a one-time occurrence. This is a lifestyle. How is it that we could develop a lifestyle of laying up treasure in heaven? And probably the best way to do it is actually have like a percentage-oriented giving as part of your financial plan. Hopefully, you've got a financial plan of how you're living. If you're just like, I get money and I just spend and I don't have money, I just use my credit card, and you're kind of just walking in oblivion, you most likely are walking into debt. You probably have serious financial issues, and it will come back to bite you. One of the things that the Bible extols is being a good steward of your money, knowing what you have, where it's come from, where it's going, how you're going to invest it. And if you're going to invest in the kingdom of heaven, you've got to set a goal or a percentage of what that's going to look like. And it's just like like a one-time deal, but it's just an ongoing part of your life. It speaks of devotion. It speaks of regularity, consistency. And so if you're thinking like, well, you know what? I don't have a lot of money, but I'll tell you what. Once I do, then I'll start giving. Okay? And there's people that think that way. But the reality is that will never happen. Because you will never have enough. You see, let me tell you, whether you have little or much, this is what God's doing. 
He is seeing if you can be faithful with what you have. And if you can be faithful with a little, then God is in a position and will, will actually, likely, give you much because you have shown yourself to be what? Responsible. Works that way in our businesses, right? You find the guy or the gal that is faithful with few tasks that you give them. They do it. They do it well. They do it even exceeding your expectations. You give them bigger projects. You see it. Whether in coaching rank, business world, they start on the bottom. They just keep moving up. Why? Because they've shown themselves to be responsible. And God does that with his finances. Can you be faithful with a little? Peter Marshall, who was the U.S. chaplain Senate 1947 through 49, as well as a pastor in the Washington, D.C. area, he met a man who was coming to his church and who had a significant problem, at least in this man's estimation. And when he approached Peter Marshall, he said this, I, I've got a serious dilemma. You know, when I was making 20000 which back then, probably a pretty good chunk of money, he says, you know, I was able, and it was relatively easy for me to give 10% of my income to tithe. This is my problem. I'm now making $500,000 a year, and there is no way I can give 10% of my income. Peter Marshall's looking at me like, you're right. You have a very serious problem. Do you, do you think we could pray about this? Oh, yeah, we, we need to pray. So they right there, and, you know, Peter Marshall, great Scottish accent, bold guy, not afraid of anybody. So this is what he prays. Quote, Dear Lord, this man has a problem, and I pray that you will help him. Lord, reduce his salary back to the place where he can afford to tithe. <laughs> so he's just right there. And I, can you, I, you can't you just see the guy? Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, 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 no. You got it all wrong here. Wait, we're misunderstanding here. Now listen, when we talk about percentage giving, most Christians go, okay, it, it's tithe and, and give 10%. I have, I have news for you. The New Testament nowhere says that you have to give 10%. What it speaks of is grace giving, free will giving. You give according to your means. You give graciously. You look at Second Corinthians chapter 8. These people that didn't have anything, they're giving beyond what they had. There's no 10%, okay? And I know that's very common in, in Christian thinking. However, 10% is really, that is a good goal. You want to lay up treasure in heaven? That's what Jesus is talking about. That is, that is an, a great goal. Now, you're saying, well, maybe the 10% came from the Old Testament. Well, actually... If you look at giving in the Old Testament, and when people say tithe, the word tithe means a tenth, okay? So we, Christian lingo, we're tithing, but what? I put $20 in and I make 100000 That's not tithing. Tithing is what? 10%, okay? So you think, well, maybe the tithe comes from the Old Testament. Actually, in the Old Testament, if you look at what they gave, it comes out to about 23% on average per year. That does not take into account what they called free will offerings in which they willingly brought gifts to the temple as a worship to God, whether thanksgiving, whether just in praise. That was on top of the 23%. Now, that 23% kind of funded their theocracy government that they had, but primarily it went for religious purposes, funding the temple, all the Levitical priests, their festivals. That is what they gave. And so don't think like, wow, if I'm giving 10%, I'm probably giving like what they gave. No. They gave quite a bit more. They gave like 23%. And so what we need to do is you got to have a plan. If you showed up this morning, you don't have a plan, I'll tell you what your plan is. It's called leftover giving. What will happen is you'll just see, you'll go through your money, and if and if there is something left over, and generally there's not, because if you have money, like, 
here I am at Starbucks again. Whoa. You know, or you just buy something you totally don't need, impulse buying, and then you will give God what is left over if anything's left over. And what Jesus is saying is, you're not storing up treasure in heaven. That's where joy, life is. Follow me. Let me be the great joy in your life. And if you're saying, well, whoa, Grant, you're talking about like significant giving. I can't do that. What about the economy or the wars that are going on or, or my job? Let me ask you, who's in charge of the economy? If you're thinking it's the chairman of the Federal Reserve, you're wrong. You know who's in charge of it? God is. God's in charge. He's God. He's the almighty, supreme. He is the personal, benevolent, loving, giving, gracious, almighty God, and he's in control. And he says, Jesus, says, if you want to follow me, you need to begin to have patterns of storing up treasure in heaven. In essence, he's saying, put me first. Jesus is first. It is a joy to give. When Jesus becomes the priority in our life, it is a joy to give to what God's doing in our church, to missionaries, to see how his kingdom is advancing in the world. It's like, I want to be a part of it. And you develop patterns where of years like this, it is just a joy to be able to invest in the kingdom of heaven and to be a part of what God is doing on the earth. And so, what will you do? What is your game plan when it comes to your finances? Now, let me just tell you, I think most of you know this, but if you're relatively new around here, at Fellowship Bible Church, no one knows what you give. I only know of one family's giving patterns in this church. That's the call family, my family. No elder, nobody knows. We have a bookkeeper, and she actually records those things and sends you the quarterly statements and something that you get at the end of the year for your taxes. And I tell her, I want you to forget. Because this is a matter between you and God. But it is a very serious matter. In fact, Jesus is going to amp it up as we continue to move, it on, move through here. But, friends, I also want to say this. Look what God's been doing in our midst now for years. Look at the financial health, the ability to now actually move out to a global perspective with the gospel and our taking the gospel forward to unreached people groups like the Banjara and ministries that are strengthening. And friends, God is obviously moving in our hearts to give graciously, sacrificially, and generously. And it's happening. And just as a friend and pastor, I just want to say thank you and praise be to God. It's happening. But let it continue. Let us continue to set our sights on Jesus Christ and invest in the kingdom of heaven and lay up treasure with him. And so what you need to do is you need to set a goal. For some of you, maybe it's like, you know what, I'm going to, I'll try 10%. Maybe some, it's like, I want to start laying up some treasure in heaven and do this on a regular basis. And for others of us, it, we could do more. We could continue to give more for his glory. You see, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, let me tell you something else about Jesus. Following Jesus as Lord, he's going to not only be a new priority of with your wealth, but look at these next couple of verses here. He's going to give you a new perspective on your life. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So when if, then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the dark- darkness? 
And what he's saying here is that your eye is the organ of sight. It gives you the ability to see physically. We know that. But he's using it here in a figurative sense. Your eyes give you the ability to see, to perceive, to have spiritual perception of what really is important, what's really going on. And what Jesus is driving at here is if your eyes are not clear, you have no true spiritual perception. If your eye is evil, it's unhealthy, could be a better translation, then it's impossible for you to see well and perceive life correctly, whether that be God, sin, relationships, anything, because you have an eye problem, a perception problem. On the other hand, Jesus is saying, if your eye is healthy, it's good. It puts you in a situation where you actually see things as they really are. God, relationships, the importance to love, the willingness to sacrifice, to give, to minister to others, but especially within context of what you do with your money. You see, when you see people giving to, the, to God and doing it in such a healthy way to the kingdom of heaven, they got good eyesight. They have spiritual perception. When you have people, and when they talked about someone with an evil eye, it was someone who was greedy. They, they wanted, it's all about them. They were selfish, stingy, greedy. These are the people that simply could not see. And that's why Jesus said, hey, if your eyes are bad, you have bad perception. Man, how great the darkness is within you. You're just stumbling through this life and you're going in the wrong direction. Even if a whole society pats you on the back and go, way to go. You're doing it, kid. You got all that money and driving all those nice cars. And you can think less about the kingdom of heaven or God or what he's doing or the poor and they'll pat you on the back, and they'll smile at you and say, way to go, kid. All the way to you, make your entrance into the abyss. Jesus says, I want to be Lord of your life. I want you to see clearly. Follow me. I will give you a new perspective on your life. And he will. Isn't it true? Christian, isn't it true when we follow Jesus as Lord, don't you see things differently? I mean, everything. People, problems, our money, opportunities. Why? Because Jesus is Lord of our life. Let me tell you something else that comes from following Jesus as Lord. He gives us a new passion for our Father. Listen to this closer. Listen to verse 24. You might want to make a mark by this or or underline it. Jesus says, I want this to be clearly understood. This is critical in life. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, period. Now, we read this, trying to understand this whole master thing. By the way, the word master, kurios, is oftentimes translated Lord. Anytime you say Jesus is Lord, you could say Jesus is master, my master. He's saying you can't serve two masters. And when it came to slavery, I mean, you're very familiar with slavery. If you were a slave, that meant that you had absolutely no rights of your own and you had no time on your own. You simply did what your master asked you to do. Okay? And so he's saying, guess what? You can only have one master. You can have two masters because eventually they're going to have you going in two different directions. You can only have one who will be your master. And so Jesus says you will be devoted to one. What does it look like when you're devoted? Somebody uh, explained that this guy was devoted to his wife. 
What do you, okay, what comes to mind? Well, they're, they're finding time. He's attending to her constantly, uh, following after. He's, he's involved. He's devoted. And then when it's, when it's personal, it's more than just being there and kind of following through, but it has the idea that there's, there's tenderness. There's a love toward that individual. When you're devoted to someone, there's a love and a tenderness to it. Well, guess what? If you're devoted to God, there's a willingness and a desire to go his way. There is a love and a tenderness, and it is, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I will do it gladly because you're devoted. However, if you're devoted to wealth, which is an interesting word, then you are going to find that that's going to be the subject of your thoughts and your priorities. Now, mammon, or, and that's how it is, the mammos is the Greek word there. Maybe your Bible has mammon, or mine has translated wealth, has a very interesting history. Mammon, or wealth, used to be that which you entrusted to another person. So if you had money, you could entrust it to someone as a bank or a money changer. You entrusted them to watch over your resources. Okay? That was called mammon. However, over time, the word changed from not what you entrusted to someone, but that which you put your trust in. And it became, it took on a whole new meaning. And then what literally happened is that mammon became nothing less than a god, a little G-O-D, an alternative messiah. And so when Jesus is saying you can't serve two masters, you're either going to be devoted to God or wealth slash mammon, which will it be? It's not wrong to possess wealth. It's wrong when wealth possesses you. Now, this is the Pharisees and the scribes. They were they were already coming unrattled and, and unraveled in front of Jesus because of everything he's saying. This one had to hit him in the core because they actually believed that you could be devoted to God and money at the same time. Jesus now just said you can't. They thought this, that if you were divinely blessed, God rewarded you with riches. And so people who were wealthy were perceived to be divinely blessed. So you were godly. You had a great relationship with God. And God gave you lots of money. That's how he saw, saw it. That's where the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel of today comes from. You love God, God gives you lots of money, you know, and it's all great. And it's tied to you. Can be, you can love money and, and, and be devoted to it because God gave it to you. And you, it's kind of a cyclical relationship that you've got there. Jesus says, nope. It can only be one. And eventually they're going to call you into two different directions. You see, the devotion to wealth is going to call you to build a kingdom on this earth. Devotion to God is calling you to invest in this kingdom of heaven. Devotion to wealth is saying live for the here and now. Devotion to God is saying live for me and for eternity. Begin this day. And so what will it be? Jesus says you're either going to hate one or love the other. This speaks of kind of an ongoing state. So, which is it? I don't want you to walk out these doors today without knowing who is your God. I want us to take a sober look at it. God's got our full attention. Then doing some thinking. What does it look like when truly wealth is your God? When wealth is your master? What would be some red flags? Let me give you a few. A person likes to flaunt his wealth or her wealth. Like put it out on a show. After all, it's all the toys you can get. You may as well advertise. You got them, right? Another red flag. A person never seems to have enough. Oh, I just need more, more, more. I need another dollar. What do you mean? You already have a million. I just need another one. Another red flag that wealth may be your master. 
A person hates to give, no matter how pressing the need. They just, no way, no way. And they, they find a rationalization why they could never be involved. Um, let me give you another red flag. A person may be willing to sin to acquire more to keep as much as they have. They will cheat on expense accounts. They'll take it from their boss, their office. They will fudge numbers on their tax returns. Why? Because they have an interest in their God, their G-O-D of wealth. Let me give you another. The person's sense of security comes in life when they look at their wealth. How are you doing? Just fine. What's that? Dude, have you seen my returns on my investments? Awesome. I am doing good. Or, how are you doing? God is my refuge and strength. I'm doing far better than I deserve. God is awesome. I'm doing just fine. Let me give you one other red flag that your master may be your wealth. You think very little of eternity and its consequences of devotion to wealth. A sermon like this makes you cringe. You would rather that Jesus didn't have those words. You're thinking at this point, you know, Thomas Jefferson, maybe he had it right where you cut out the sections of the Bible that you don't like. Where's my pen knife? Cut this out. I'll pray, but don't ask me to ever give to the kingdom of heaven. What? I don't like it. Guess what? It is a red flag. Friend, you're in danger. This is not a laughing matter. Jesus says, you will either be devoted to one and hate the other. You cannot have both God and wealth. It is very important for you to know who is your master. Friends, the issue is not how well you can serve this or that master. It's that you cannot serve them both. Which will it be? You can't do it both ways. Jesus just said that. Let me give you the instruction that Paul wrote in 1 Timothy. At the very end of this letter, he said this. Instruct those who are rich in this present world, i.e., all of us, not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us all things to enjoy. God richly supplies you for what? All things to enjoy. He gave it to you. He would want you to have joy in it. But listen to what he says. Instruct them to do good. There is great joy in doing good. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. When we learn to be conduits of his grace and even through giving, I mean, it is life. It's life indeed because we're honoring and serving our God. So who really is your master? Susie Orman wrote a book called Nine Steps to Financial Freedom. In her opening section, she writes of a scene that took place when she was a 13-year-old girl that forever changed her. And that is, she talked about her dad, who owned this little restaurant deal, I guess we'd call it. She said it was a shack where he made hamburgers and hot dogs and ribs and, and fries and chicken they'd cook. And one day, the oil and the, that they kind of deep-fried all that chicken in caught on fire. <laughs> And pretty soon the whole shack is just in blazes. The whole thing's burning down and her dad escapes with his life getting out of that shack there. He's watching his business just burn to the ground. Susie, at age 13, and her mom come to the scene there, standing with dad who escapes with his life, watching their business burn. 
And then they're standing there, and all of a sudden, her dad realizes that that metal cash register is in the shop. Stand there. So this thing's blazing. He goes and takes off running into this inferno. Things all just blazing with fire. No one can stop him. He goes in there. He tries to open up the metal cash register where all his money is, but it is so hot that it is sealed shut. And so this man grabs the scalding hot metal cash register, pulls it into his body with his arms, has it against his chest, and he runs out of this blazing building, and he drops it, throws it out onto the ground, and with it all his flesh on his arms and his chest, he has these severe burns. You find that shocking? Well, listen to what Susie says next. This is going to blow you away. Quote, That is when I learned that money is obviously more important than life itself. From that point on, earning money, lots of money, not only became what drove me professionally, but also became my emotional priority. Who? is your master. Because whoever your master is, is going to determine the direction of your life. Now, I want you to know something. All of you who are parents, you are modeling for your kids what truly is most important in life. And your decisions, how you function, how you give, how you rejoice in the Lord, the priority you make Jesus Christ in your life, whether it be weak who are very healthy and strong, will have great influence on your kids. You know, I feel like it is a crime when we live for wealth and the world and we do it in Jesus' name. Steve Jobs, co-founder of Apple and Pixar, uh, from my uh, research, there's no indication this man has ever placed his faith in, a, in Jesus Christ as a Savior, Lord, In June 2005, he gave a commencement address at Stanford University that made a lot of press. And he said some things that made a lot of sense. I'd like to read you just one quote. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Now, there's a lot of truth in that. But more important than thinking about death, I want you to think about life. We have life in Christ. We have the ability to live and experience the joy of knowing Jesus and seeing him in every aspect of our life, especially in the area of what we do with our finances. You see, how we handle our material wealth says a lot about our spiritual health. And what we do with our wealth really indicates who is Lord in our hearts. Let me just tell you, for us as a church, my passion, our vision is to see God glorified in every respect. Do you know why we give? We give graciously, generously, sacrificially, big chunks of money. Why? For the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. At this time, I'm going to ask Steve Smith if he'd join me on stage. I think many of you are familiar with Steve. Uh, I've known Steve now for ten and, a, ten and a half years, ever since I came to Waco. He's a man I've got a lot of respect for. He's been a real encouragement to me. 
I would like you to hear just a little bit of this man's story. Well, thank you. What I'm going to share with you today are God's commandments and examples of how Kent and I have tried to live through God's commandments. Back in the early 80s, Kathy just delivered our third child in less than four years. And uh, we had one income, that was mine, and uh, obviously we're both believers, grew up in a Christian home, but our challenges for raising three kids on one income was a challenge. And we knew that we weren't living through God's commandments. Because what we knew was he told us to give him our first fruits. That's not the end of the month. That's the first of the month in our situation. And he told us to tithe. We weren't tithing. So we decided, as a couple raising three kids, that we were going to move in that direction as hard as we could. And it wasn't easy. And it's not easy. Not easy today, but it's a lot easier today than what it was back in the early 80s. We knew that we had to live a life of discipline and a life of sacrifice. Sacrifice. That doesn't mean you don't order a second Dr. Pepper. That means a lot of things, like driving five cars and each of them having over 100,000 miles. That's what we did when our kids were in college. We had three kids in college at one time. I don't encourage that. <laughs> well, let me give you a great example of how our God is so faithful. Because what we learned, we learned to live a life of faith through discipline and sacrifice. They all go together. It doesn't matter whether you're good stewards or whether it's just in your Christian walk. Those three go together every time. We prayed for our daughter's car to last until she graduated. The day before graduation, she's driving from seeing her current husband, who was then her boyfriend, back to Dallas to graduate the next day. We get a call from Corsicana. Dad, the engine blew up. I looked at Kathy and I said, why didn't we pray that car would last until she got married? Our oldest son... He didn't know it, but he fell in love with his Mustang. His Mustang was his God. Even though he was a believer, his Mustang he had fallen in love with. The day before graduation, true story, he had a 289 V8 Mustang, five-speed. It would get. I mean, it was fun. The day before graduation, outside his apartment, somebody put it up on cinder blocks and stole his wheels and tires. He figured it out. God got his attention. He'd been driving a clunker ever since. Life doesn't change as we go through periods of life. Now, Kath and I are facing a new phase of our life. You know, if you go back and look at our balance sheet each month, it made no sense how we got by. We started giving to God the first of every month. We worked toward a tithe, and we now tithe. In our eyes, it's a tithe. And... But if you look at our balance sheet, it didn't make any sense how we got through each month. But at the end of the month, we knew we'd already paid God the first of the month. So whoever got cut short, 
was part of this material world that we live in. But God was taken care of first. But every month you would look at our situation and we could not explain it. And we still can't explain it. But we know now as we go into another phase of our life, she's retired, I'll be retiring here soon or doing something else. We're raising, helping raise grandkids. What we've learned is it doesn't really matter what part of your life you're in. These principles apply. These commandments that he gives all of us applies. It does not matter where you are in life. The greatest satisfaction we have now is that all three of our kids are living a life of faith, discipline, and sacrifice. And that is our greatest joy. Our four-year-old grandson now knows what it means to give to the poor. Our new six-week-old grandson, we look forward to that same growth. And I hope that these words of encouragement will help you through your walk as being a good steward. Because once you learn that it's God's wealth, you do look forward to giving. I know it's hard to believe, maybe for some of you, but you do look forward to giving. It becomes more of an open process for you. You're more open to it. You understand. And therefore, the more you give, the more you are given to give. I cannot explain that. I just know that it happens. God says it will. And he is faithful. Thank you very much, buddy. Well, let me just ask you, who will be your master? Scripture says, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege we've had this morning to once again worship you in spirit and truth, to come and sing songs of praise to you, to gather together, some from great weeks, others from horrific ones, and yet to praise your name and to worship you and to have your word opened and for you to instruct our hearts. And so, Lord, for those who are truly suffering in this time of economic downturn, may they realize the full magnitude of the word that you are with them always. Lord, help us to live by faith and not by sight. Help us to trust you for great things. Lord, would you do the noble, the godly, and that which is holy in your sight in our hearts and in our lives. So, Father, if we have been stingy and covetous, we confess it as sin. Where we, Lord, have fallen short or not trusted you, we also confess that. And Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness and the joy that is found in Jesus. Would you encourage all of our hearts? May we see all of our lives, what we do with our time, the gifts you've given us, resources, as just an expression of offering of worship of you. Not just this morning, but each day. And we'd ask, Lord, for all of this. For you to be glorified in our lives and in our church. And we pray in Jesus' name.